0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. A little later in the hour, a conversation with the author of a new book about the nationwide housing crisis. Uh, his name is Brendan O'Brien. His book. Homesick, why housing is unaffordable, and how we can change it. But first, with the Iowa GOP caucuses less than 30 days away, let's continue with our series, Home State View, a chance to view the presidential candidates in a bit of a different way. Uh, Rather than the day-to-day campaign coverage, we we check in with journalists in the candidates' home states who are well acquainted uh, with their early political careers before becoming presidential candidates, Today, we focus on former governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, recently had a chance to speak with Roby Brock. He's editor-in-chief of Talk Business and Politics. That's a multimedia business and political news organization. He's worked in Arkansas politics in one form or another, going back some 30 years. Uh, Roby Brock, joining us from Little Rock, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me, Ben.
1: Let's do some background on Asa Hutchinson, his rise in politics. Uh, I see a connection with the Reagan administration.
2: Yeah, um, Asa Hutchinson was, uh, I think, his first foray into, um, you know, kind of high-profile Arkansas politics was when President Reagan appointed him at the tender age of around 33 years old to be a U.S. prosecuting attorney in the Western District of Arkansas and, and he, I think, he was the youngest at that time that had ever been appointed to that position. And it turned out to be a pretty high-profile post for him. Uh, not that all U.S. attorneys don't have some high-profile cases, but Arkansas had a particular um, strain of, of uh, paramilitary organization that had, uh, had created this compound in, a, in the district that Asa Hutchinson prosecuted in and. They only wanted to deal with him in some negotiations for a standoff. And so he really kind of became very prominent very early in that attorney, that prosecuting attorney's role for successfully and peacefully negotiating that standoff, which took a lot of courage. He entered that compound on his own in a bulletproof vest by himself Mm. um, with the entire compound being surrounded by the U.S. military, other aspects of the federal government, and a a ton of uh, state government uh, law enforcement. Uh, And after about three days of negotiations off and on, he he wound up working it out, brought everybody out peacefully, and wound up prosecuting them successfully as well. So it was a really big feather in his cap Mm -hmm. early in his career.
1: Let's jump forward to how Asa Hutchinson figures into the story of how Arkansas shifted from a Democratic state to a Republican state. How did this happen?
2: Well, he became active in Republican Party politics after that high-profile standoff and that stint as a U.S. prosecutor that I mentioned. Arkansas at that time, back in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, was very dominated by Democratic politics. Bill Clinton was obviously a huge presence on the scene, um, and that was on the heels of the great Dale Bumpers and uh, David Pryor and uh, many other kind of notables from um, previous years. And so Asa was kind of often the uh, sacrificial lamb for the Republicans when they needed a governor's candidate, when they needed a U.S. Senate Mm. candidate, when they needed an attorney general candidate. And he ran unsuccessfully, I think, four times before he got elected to Congress uh, in a a conservative district in the northwest corner of the state. But but as party chairman, he advocated for a two-party state. And as uh, a candidate, he was often on the ballot, you know, expressing some pretty Republican and conservative views that just did not align at the time with the Democratic stronghold on the state. And so he, he often got beat badly in those races before he was elected governor.
1: Yeah. And what finally made the difference? Did the, the state's politics change or did he change?
2: Uh, I would safely say that Asa Hutchinson did not change, and he liked to use that line when he campaigned a lot. I haven't changed, but the state of Arkansas has. Um, He ran for governor in 2006 against a very popular Democrat, kind of the last of the Clinton Democrats, a guy named Mike Mike Beebe, who was universally loved among Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. He lost that race uh, handily, and then when... Mike Beebe's eight years were up. Asa ran again. And I think a lot of people were not, uh, at least Republicans, were a little nonplussed about his uh, candidacy at the time. But he really did a great job of kind of mobilizing uh, a good message on tax cuts. And at that time that he was running in 2014, Arkansas had really shifted over about the last two election cycles from being A a Democrat-dominated state to a very competitive Republican state. I just think that the national tailwinds of what had been happening across the South for a few decades finally caught up to Arkansas. Obama was president, so there was not a big, strong connection uh, with that Democratic Party machine in Arkansas. The Clinton influence had waned. Over time, And so I think what you saw happen in a lot of other southern states with Republicans gaining more and more control started to finally happen in 2010, 2012. And Asa Hutchinson was really the beneficiary of that, which was a party he had been building for 30 years. And so it was a well-known commodity. He turned out to be a very popular governor and uh, won convincingly in that 2014 race, then served two terms, uh, four years apiece.
1: Roby, how would you describe Asa Hutchinson's brand of conservatism? Uh, his his uh, Where is he on the political spectrum? You
2: know, early in his career, I would put him as a, a firebrand extreme conservative <laughs> back when the state was uh, pretty dominated by, again, the Clinton machine and the uh, Democratic politics that we saw at the national level in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but I, I would say that, When he started campaigning for governor, and particularly the way he governed for his eight years in office, I I saw a real pragmatic conservatism in Asa Hutchinson. He did not bend on issues that he is staunchly um, has strong positions on. For instance, the abortion issue. He he does not waver on that issue. He does not waver on the Second Amendment uh, and the the right to bear arms. But on a lot of other issues, I found him to be a very uh, solution-oriented governor. He understood compromise. He found ways to work across party aisles. Uh, he even had divisions within his own Republican Party that he had to navigate. I thought he did a pretty deft job as um, as governor in, in being a guy that could bring a lot of different voices to the table, hammer out some solutions. One of his most favorite things to do is to create a task force for things. We used to joke about that a lot. There would always be a task force for something uh, that caused a lot of problems. But what that did was it, it allowed some time to let some of the pressure blow off on some particularly hot topics. It allowed some people to come together and fashion some solutions that had a little bit of everybody's you know fingerprints on it. And I think that was a very successful blueprint for him in governing, whether it was tax cuts or health care, uh, navigating the COVID 19 pandemic, um, a variety of other issues.
1: Yeah. How did Arkansans view his leadership during the pandemic?
2: Uh, I think it was pretty favorable. We did a, we do a lot of political polling in our state, and his his favorable uh, numbers remained extremely high. I mean, we either saw high fifties uh, to mid, and sometimes upper sixties with his approval rating. What I found very interesting during that time, and, and just for a little bit of background for your listeners, he he would hold a daily press conference. Those first, gosh, almost for more than a year, I think there was almost a daily weekday press conference where he would roll out the numbers, what they're doing, bring in different experts to really explain things to people, why they were making some of the decisions they were making. Um, But we found in our polling that he remained popular with Republicans, you know, 60 to 70 percent range. Um, And he was extremely popular with independents, very close to those numbers with independents. And he even had Democratic support uh, by that time, uh, around 50 percent which is difficult for any politician to do in Arkansas. Mike Beebe did it, his predecessor. Uh, They were really, um, you know, not mirror images of each other, but they were very close in terms of their centrist kind of nature. I I thought that Asa Hutchinson, you know, kind of earned some of his popularity by being a pragmatic conservative and and really just finding some common sense ways to navigate that pandemic in a way that made people comfortable and in a way that communicated to people uh, in a way that they understood what was going on. There was not a lot of secrecy. There was a lot of transparency.
1: Yes, his politics have not, though, according to polling, not really connected with Iowans. He's been polling consistently around 1%. We have less than 30 days before the uh, caucuses here. What is your view on why he's been unable to again, according to polling, unable to gain traction here in this state. I
2: think that it is the, the proverbial lane that he's trying to, you know, drive in is the anti-Tru- uh, anti-Trump lane. And right now, Republican primary politics are still very dominated by Donald Trump in a you know, variety of ways. And I just don't think that Asa Hutchinson has been the messenger uh, nor has he had the profile, the money has not made the debate stage enough to be able to project that image of I'm I'm a different candidate than what you have in this choice of Donald Trump over here. He hasn't had the, the platform to be able to project what it is that he wants to do as president and how he wants to be different than the front runner. Um, and and I think that's been his biggest holdback.
1: We've had others in, in that polling range drop out of the race, um, which begs the question why. Asa Hutchinson may still be in this race. Thoughts there? That's a good
2: question. I've asked him that question a few times. And uh, I think that, uh, number one, I think he probably wants to make sure that there's going to be a choice on the ballot. Um, He can be a little stubborn like that sometimes, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that uh, the other thing is, is he wants to be a, a, a voice in the Republican Party nationally. And you know, absent Chris Christie, there's not another candidate that has been super effective in communicating an anti-Trump message besides Asa Hutchinson. So I do think that after Iowa, if he if he fares poorly, and particularly after New Hampshire, if he fares poorly there, which is, is likely, I think he wants to give it a shot and say, have no regrets when this is over, say, hey, I, I did everything I could to try to pull my political party back to the that Reagan-esque kind of memory that I think uh, is at the core of what he believes in the Republican Party is, and I think influenced him greatly from that very beginning stage of being tight with with Ronald Reagan and being appointed as prosecuting attorney by him.
1: A home state view um, of the former governor of Arkansas given to us by Roby Brock, editor-in-chief of Talk, Business, and Politics. Uh, joining us from Little Rock, we appreciate your view Roby, take care.
2: Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me.
1: Coming up after a short break, a conversation with the author of a new book about the nationwide housing crisis. It's River to River.
0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Affording a home to call your own. It's become a big issue, especially among younger generations of Americans. My guest for this portion of the program is uh, author Brendan O'Brien. Brendan grew up in Davenport. He has a new book out titled Homesick, Why Housing is Unaffordable and How We Can Change It. I spoke with Brendan recently. Brendan, welcome to River to River. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your background here and why you decided to write a book about the housing crisis.
3: Sure. So I grew up in Davenport, Iowa, and uh, spent all of my childhood, went, uh, went to college in Missouri, stayed in Minnesota for several years. So deep roots in the Midwest. Uh, the roots of homesick actually come from a trip I took with friends to New Orleans, and we were trying to get out of the Minnesota winter in February, and that seemed like a great spot to be, Mm -hmm. and we rented an Airbnb, thinking we'd save some money, we could cook more meals, uh, and kind of be part of a neighborhood.
1: And this was how long ago?
3: That was in 2017. Mm -hmm. And uh, while we were there, uh, on the same block where we were renting the Airbnb, there was a sign that said, neighbors, not Airbnbs. And that kind of planted a seed in my head uh, because we were running an entire home short-term rental. The house next door was an entire home short-term rental. Uh, And then over the next few years, I worked for the Forest Service and Park Service out west. And I started a grad program in Flagstaff, Arizona in geography. And I saw a sign there that said, Homes, Not Hotels. And I needed a thesis topic, so that became a great starting point, how do short-term rentals affect housing in western mountain towns? And it really just grew from there. Uh, I was studying this, uh, I made that my thesis topic in December, January of 2019, 2020. And then, as you know, COVID hit and the housing market really exploded Mm -hmm. and it just became a much bigger topic. Uh, much bigger than just a thesis.
1: Yeah, and so short-term rentals play a role in this, um, but in, having read your book, it it precedes, um, well, I guess the problem precedes COVID, which you mentioned. Um, so talk a little bit about, because you're speaking to a number of, being heard by a number of people who have their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're of a generation, perhaps uh, much different circumstances, and they could have a starter home and then progress uh, from there. So, How would you describe the magnitude of the crisis, and who in particular is it impacting right now?
3: Yeah, there's a a lot to talk about there. (laughs) Um, So it's a a huge crisis because we realize on a fundamental level that housing determines so much of our daily lives, of our health, of where our kids go to school, of our access to uh, nature, and uh, access to economic opportunities. And so when you have a home that's interconnected to all these spaces, you have all those things. When you don't, or when you have an unstable home, or you're chronically unhoused, uh, you're uh, paying way more than uh, what experts say that you should. Suddenly you have much less, Uh, time and energy to devote to the things that really matter Mm -hmm. and uh, as far as who's most affected by it it depends on what aspect you're talking about Uh, when it comes to buying a home that's still far and away what people associate with the American dream put in that in quotes Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, success in our society and I would argue there's problems with that. But before getting into that, that's really the uh, way that we become stable in our society. We only have two options, which are renting and uh, home ownership, largely in our society. And in other countries, renters are much more protected. Uh, but in our country, uh, home ownership is much more stable. And young people today can't get into home ownership. Uh, I have a lot of. Uh, I I guide trips out in Flagstaff and people will sometimes say, oh, I've heard that young people uh, like renting. And my response is kind of, well, I've heard that that's our only option, so we might as well (laughs) like renting. Um, But it's it's not just young people and it affects uh, older people who would like to downsize or people who... uh, are paying much more when they buy a home than they would like to. And then it kind of uh, entrenches a cycle where you're relying on the price of housing to go up to justify getting in.
1: Mm -hmm. Before we um, have you sort of walk us through how we got to this point, I'd like to have you read from the introduction of of your book, because you made me aware in your writing that home ownership has wide ramifications, and you you outlined that a little bit right now. But I wonder if I can ask you to read from the introduction of your book, because I think it really makes clear um what you what you explained a bit about about what home ownership has in terms of the significance and and how it forms community or prevents community from being formed.
3: Yeah, so I'm gonna start by framing this uh, in terms of the uh, greater economic issue um, and or greater, greater e- economic landscape. And there was a 2018 Federal Reserve study that found, 39% of people, so two in every five people in the U.S., couldn't personally pay for an unexpected $400 expense. And uh, starting from there, in this context, the dire state of housing has far-reaching consequences that are hard on individuals and downright crushing for families. When housing is unaffordable, people start making difficult decisions about housing about how they spend their money. They begin making impossible choices between nutritious food and housing, reliable transportation and housing, Having children in housing, and the list continues, they do not save, start businesses, or think to the future. They seek to make it through the month. In this context, they start allocating their time differently, which changes their relationship to their community. It's hard to justify keeping a garden just to move in the middle of the season. It's hard to justify keeping a pet when this will limit future housing options. It's hard to justify forming relationships with neighbors when they likely won't be your neighbors for long. In short, when every decision is driven by the anxiety of affording the roof overhead, it becomes difficult to justify forming relationships or engaging in community events.
1: Brendan O'Brien, native of Davenport and author of Homesick, Why Housing is Unaffordable, and how we can change it, uh, reading from a short portion from uh, his book. So quantify it a little bit. So just we, we, we know the magnitude of this problem. Uh, compared to a decade or two ago, can we put it in those terms? How many uh, lack home ownership? What, what What is
3: the trend line there? So it, 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 it's hard to put into terms that way. Um, the homeownership dropped significant homeownership rate dropped significantly after the great recession 2007 2008 mm-hmm. um and when i say significantly that's from around 68% of uh households down to uh maybe 64% which doesn't sound like a lot but that's millions and millions of people sure and uh that hit non-white people uh black black communities, Native communities, Latino communities, especially hardest. Uh, and then that's also at the time when we have more and more uh, a, a growing young population who's in a prime position to buy homes and or was in the past. Uh, but that the rate of home ownership among people forty and younger has dropped significantly. and so that's where, It really strikes. And then people uh, are also spending much more on housing when they go to buy a home. As a percentage of their income. As a percentage of their income. So there's a May 2021 report uh, prepared by the government housing loan agency, Freddie Mac. And it talked about the percentage and the number of entry-level or starter single-family homes, uh, considering that to be 1,400 square feet or less. Uh, they were talking about that dropping drastically in the past half century. So in 1981, about 39% of all new homes built were less than that 1,400 square feet. 20 years later, 2001, it was 15%. And 20 years later, 2021, it was about 5%. Mm-hmm. And so when people go to buy a home, they people are trying to look for their forever home, not expecting to leave because... There aren't starter homes available for them, mm. and that's that's a symptom of preferences changing, but it's also a symptom of what's being built.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, before we we continue on with the consequences of, of this and um, the idea of that we need more supply of housing, because I know you go into that. Mm-hmm. What else needs to be said about how we got here? You point to the Great Recession, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, and. and it, what else needs to be told in that story tracing it back because that's really where you start your story is is the great recession isn't it
3: yeah that's a beginning and then i get into a, a lot of history um, <laughs> <laughs> and short-term rentals really became a great entry point for studying housing because in my eyes it's the clearest example that we're treating housing as a commodity as an asset not as a right not as something that's central to communities. Uh and by short term
1: rentals typically we're thinking of Airbnb.
3: Yeah, Airbnb, uh VRBO or Verbo as it's called now. Um and those have really taken over and it's a lot of people still see that as uh oh running out of room when uh in in your house, so it's just something that's not being used. Uh, now being put to use Mm -hmm. uh, rented out for less than 30 days Uh, but it's actually much different so especially in places uh, it like I was studying so I studied Flagstaff Arizona St. George Utah Bozeman Montana it's the entire home and it's for most of the year so these aren't uh, homes that are being offered up temporarily there uh, or by someone who's uh, gone for the weekend and lives there primarily these are investment properties these are second homes or third homes a commodity a commodity and uh it's an admission that the price of housing isn't affordable to one person so you have to split it up over the course of a month to a lot of different people uh, who are spending their money differently uh but it really gets into something much larger where uh it's this theme that we've had throughout U.S. history of outsiders with more money or perceived to have more money being able to come in and disrupt an existing community. And that connects to gentrification. That connects go- going way back to colonization. Uh, there are clear differences between short term rentals and the themes that I just mentioned, but the logic is still the same. Whoever has the most money. Has access to the place, no matter how stable and thriving that community was.
1: Uh, Brendan, you you um, um, in, in researching this book uh, and talking with government officials uh, throughout the country in in the researching this book, you write that they repeated the same talking point that housing's unaffordable because there's not enough supply. And um, you push back on this notion uh, of simply building more units to to solve the affordability problem. Explain why simply creating more housing won't solve the problem. If you have a a need, uh, you have more demand than you have supply, increase the supply, and that should solve it. But Mm -hmm. not in this case. Why not?
3: Yeah. uh, I think... We perceive it as a one-to-one where, oh, okay, you build more housing and everyone has one house. uh, And that's not actually the case. People buy up multiple properties. We're seeing a shift. Uh, Leilani Farha, the um, former UN Special Rapporteur on Housing, uh, she talked about this shift in global investment. So this isn't just a U.S. problem uh, in people parking their money in real estate. Commercial real estate and especially residential real estate. And I think that that makes it really clear that um, we don't just need to change our zoning rules. Uh, that's part of it. I, I'm all for changing zoning rules. I'm all for building more housing. But what housing gets built? Who is it for? And uh, it's for people to live in. It should be for people to live in. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I've,
1: I mean, I've heard in, well, uh, Manhattan, for instance, just vacant, um, uh, uh, vacant spaces that are just invested in just a a ton of vacant spaces. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the people with extra money just buy them and then watch them appreciate.
3: Right. Yeah. And And that
1: happens in, in more places than Manhattan.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's that kind of, Fits with this larger theme. A lot of developers in the real estate community they want to they want to ease zoning rules to build more housing, and it's something where we can say yes, and it should be for housing people actually. Um, and if you just if you just uh, change zoning rules, or if you just commit to building more housing, one there there's a lot of land being bought up just with the goal of that appreciating massively. And then it drives up the cost of housing. And then uh, when developers go to build, they can't, there's a uh, a floor to what they can build for because they already paid $300,000 for that land. Yeah. So they're not going to build anything for less there's than There's no that. starter home going on that. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And then the other part of it that's important is that a lot of uh, government officials, and this is what I ran into again and again, especially in places like I talked about, uh, they're trying to incentivize further growth. And so they're not trying to build for uh, mechanics or teachers or uh, firefighters. They're trying to build for remote workers who make a lot of money. They're trying to build for this investment potential. And with that, it makes it, they see it as easier to govern. They have more property taxes coming in. They have high-end people who will spend more money in the community. But what community do you have when the schools can't be supported because teachers can't afford to live there? So it's, it's really short-sighted.
1: Mm-hmm. A huge disruption to the sense of community. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it gets people into a different mindset because they're thinking if they move from rental to rental, they're not thinking they can put down roots there or what happens.
3: Definitely, yeah. And it's it really gives you a sense that you don't belong in the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Airbnb's slogan is "belong anywhere," and uh, that was that. I always understood that as a business slogan: "belong anywhere." Uh, You should support our business. You can come in here. But belong anywhere if you have the money. And increasingly, I see governments kind of taking that same logic where they're rolling out the red carpet for anyone to come move there as long as they have the money.
1: Coming up, we focus on the nationwide housing crisis. My guest is Brendan O'Brien. He's author of the new book, Homesick, Why Housing is Unaffordable and How We Can Change It. Back in just a moment, I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from
0: IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. And we're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer.
1: Let's get back to my recent conversation with Brendan O'Brien, author of the book Homesick. Brendan, you grew up in, in Davenport, in the Quad Cities, uh, and in many parts of Iowa. Our reputation here is that we have fairly low-cost housing. Uh, how is this housing crisis, uh, which you focused on um, by looking at a lot of Western uh, cities playing out here in Iowa in the Midwest. Any differently?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it depends on where you're talking about. Uh, So there are a lot of rural areas that really have a housing crisis uh, where even though cost of living might be cheap uh, and housing might be cheap, incomes are also much lower And so there's there are websites up. It's called there's one that's really common uh, called makemymove.org. And they there are small towns that are trying to incentivize remote workers to move there. And I think that's great in a sense of trying to bring more people in. uh, But it can easily cross over where suddenly you're incentivizing people who can pay more in housing. Uh, And then. Also, uh, a place like Davenport, I never thought of Davenport as having uh, a housing a housing crisis or affordability crisis. Um, but the building collapse that happened in downtown Davenport made national news. Uh, it was primarily geared toward low, low-income residents. Many of those low-income residents were paying $800 a month. And it's a cost that's far beyond that 30% of their income that the Department of Housing and Urban Development recommends. And uh, it kind of gets into something that James Baldwin used to say, that anyone who knows the cost, anyone who has experienced poverty knows that it's incredibly expensive to be poor. (laughs) And uh, it's kind of counterintuitive, but you end up spending so much more of your income toward those basic necessities when you are experiencing poverty. And so even though it is much more affordable in Davenport, it's there's a lot of money to be made from uh, apartments geared toward low-income people because they still have to live somewhere. And there's also a lot of money to be made in fast-growing areas. So uh, one of the things that I've seen in Davenport uh, is that there's this expansion out around Davenport and homes are being put on the market for six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000. And the question is, who's buying these homes? And I don't really have a clear answer to that because very few people living in Davenport, working on wages locally, can afford that price. And it incentivizes uh, local developers to build more properties like that. And uh, disincentivizes building more starter homes
1: so, so to tag on to that, who or what is to blame for all for this trend
3: there's there's a large concept uh, that's uh, brought up by Manuel Albers um, and he talked talked about it in the Great Recession he called it the financialization of home and it really speaks to a larger issue in our society that whenever something, is seen as a good investment, people seeing it strictly as an investment get in the game. So they start buying up land, they start uh, getting into real estate, uh, and you can apply this to healthcare, you can apply it to education. Whenever there's money to be made and the market stays open to whoever puts down the most money, it's locals who end up losing again and again.
0: Mm
1: Brendan, uh, your book also includes an examination of the social history of this country tied mm-hmm. up with housing, especially as it affects uh, Native American populations, black populations. Talk about that aspect as well.
3: Yeah. So there's there's something that's really interesting in our society. Uh, people oftentimes will st- stick to party lines and say, oh, well, this all happened when this politician got in or when this party got in. Mm-hmm. But we have this trend of continually excluding people. And then uh something that uh I can't remember her name right now, but a a scholar and theorist terms predatory inclusion. And uh for from nineteen thirty until the nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies and eighties, uh, non white people were excluded from the Federal Housing Administration excluded from gaining credit toward home ownership. The Federal Housing Administration gave out billions of dollars in loans toward home ownership. Less than two percent of those went to non-white people, and so you really have this history that's built in. Uh, you can access uh, uh, what what's called redlining of who was given credit and where. Uh, you can see those digital maps. And a lot of them still match what we have today of uh, the racial segregation in our societies. And that predatory inclusion, when it came to uh, the Great Recession and where banks were seeking out people for subprime mortgages and giving predatory rates to get them into home ownership, even though they couldn't afford it, even though it was going to go sky high, in a number of years, those were in primarily black neighborhoods, and mm-hmm. so it's a theme that we come back to again and again of who gets to belong.
1: You you start telling this story. One starting point that you tell is is as we mentioned before uh, the Great Recession two thousand eight mm-hmm. two thousand seven. But we also have had the pandemic now, mostly in our rearview mirror. Uh, to what degree is this housing crisis? connected with the pandemic.
3: Very connected. Uh I was actually just in Colorado and uh I I stayed with a friend who uh his parents their house was worth about $250,000 and not too different in in the western slope of Colorado and not too different than uh homes of that size in different parts of Iowa. Uh in just a matter of years with the number of people buying up land and buying up housing uh, their home value has gone up to $700,000
1: from 250,000 in a
3: matter of 3 years. And That's so, a good investment. Yeah, and that's <laughs> that's the thing it it becomes a very good investment. And but for people who it's a good time to sell your home, but you also have to live somewhere. And for their kids who might want to live in the in that area, there is nowhere to buy. Uh, and so not even getting into property taxes going up in the neighborhood that you bought into changing so drastically, it just has become a very good investment. And it's a seller's market. Um, and if you actually want to stay in a place, it's not a good time for you. Mm-hmm. And that's a really bad message to send for building community, for uh, building a life and looking to the future
1: homesick is the name of the book um, by Brendan O'Brien why housing is unaffordable and how we can change it well let's get to the the, the last part of uh, of your book which looks at solutions um, community land trusts you have as one solution so um, what do you see as as solutions uh, I guess reversing this trend or or making it more affordable across the country, also here in the Midwest? What needs to be done, in your opinion?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think we there needs to be a real shift in how we view housing. Instead of seeing it as a commodity, we s- need to see it as a human right and as fundamental to uh, community, fundamental to how society really operates. Uh, in the past that was reflected more so because you had to live closer to work. Um, but now uh, our labor force is increasingly put toward uh, toward leisure activities for a lot of people. And uh, there's what you could consider a lot of surplus labor. And uh, people are being seen as surplus. And that's why you're seeing uh, the amount of people who are unhoused uh, and I use that term directly to say that they're not without a home. It, they've been pushed out of housing. Uh, you're seeing that rise a lot in cities throughout the country. And I think you're going to continue to see it in places that are very affordable, right, seen as affordable right now. So this
1: trend will continue unless something's done. Unless something's
3: done. And I think uh, community land trusts are one model that already exists. What uh, is that? What are they? It's a model where the land is owned by an entity that doesn't want the price of housing to it doesn't want it to increase astronomically and so that could be city government that could be nonprofits, that could be neighborhood associations Uh, but the idea is that the land is held in trust and uh, when you buy a home on top of that you buy it for a much lower cost and so it's more affordable to begin with if you were going to p- spend 400000 maybe you'll spend 250000 to buy this home. And if you want to sell it, if you want to uh, pass it on to your kids, if you want to make improvements, you can do all those things. But the appreciation on the home is held in check. So if you have something like COVID, where the housing market goes up astronomically way higher than uh, wages rise, the home is still kept at the rate where if a teacher could afford it before, a teacher can afford it after.
1: Yeah. How politically feasible is a solution like that? Because so many in our country and in our politics believe in sort of laissez-faire, um, let the market decide, and you know the marketplace knows best. Let's not put all these regulations on it.
3: Yeah. Uh, first, I'd say that it's very feasible because it's already in existence throughout the country. Uh, it, they have it in Flagstaff. They have it in Bozeman. Uh, it's in Georgia and Rhode Island and uh, Hawaii, Colorado, uh, Utah, all over the place. The other thing is that that I try to push back against in the book is that people treat the market as something that will uh, determine itself and uh, that intervention is the only action. But when government doesn't do anything, that is in itself an action. And that's something in action is an action. is an action. It's a choice that we're making. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we've one prime example of that is uh, there was when people had their homes foreclosed, hundreds of thousands of homes foreclosed in the Great Recession. I keep, keep coming back to that, but you can come up to COVID as well. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, they put these homes up for auction. And anyone could buy. And that was, that was a choice that they made. They could have said, these are for people who want to afford a home, who will stay in that area, who will stay in that home. But what ended up happening is uh, private equity firms like Blackstone bought up these properties in tens and thousands, uh, uh, by, by the tens of thousands. And they turned around, raised the price on them. And ended up renting them out to people again. Which
1: which didn't help um, our home ownership rate.
3: Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, these are choices that are being made again and again. The market is a choice. And it's a choice made by government, but also made by all of us. And so when it comes to housing, uh, we really have a stark choice about treating housing as a commodity or as... Uh, the cornerstone of community, and I would argue that we need to start seeing housing as something very fundamental to our communities.
1: Brendan O'Brien is a native of Davenport. Homesick is his book, Why Housing is Unaffordable and How We Can Change It. I would be remiss, Brendan, if I didn't ask you about the personal side of this for you. Are you a homeowner?
3: No, I'm not. Okay. May I ask your age? I'm 33. Yeah?
1: So Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about not being
3: a homeowner at the age of 33? You know, I... Do you hope to be a homeowner? I want to be able to be secure in a place. And so if there is, if community land trusts were available far and wide, uh, I I, I would love to live in a community land trust. I would love to be stable in a place. Um, And one thing with Flagstaff and different things is that even if when you treat yourself as just an individual and try to raise your wage and afford the cost of housing, I could double down and uh, get multiple jobs and make the right investments maybe. And then maybe I could afford a house in Flagstaff, but I still watch so many friends, so many employees at the businesses that I frequent, so many people who hold the community together leave because they can't afford housing. and so. I want to afford housing, but I want it to be affordable for everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. What's been reaction to your your book, Brendan? Well, have you had some interesting or surprising reactions?
3: I think one of the things that uh, it's been—I've had some really good conversations uh, throughout uh, d- different events that I've done because I've had events with local housing organizers, and it's really energizing to hear the solutions that are happening on a local level uh, throughout the country. And that kind of spurred me on when I was writing about it. Uh, I was, uh, (laughs) I talk about working on my thesis, which eventually expanded on to be the more narrative book. And I was in the attic of my place in Flagstaff. It was winter. Uh, I could stand up and if I moved two feet to either side, I would hit my head on my ceiling. (laughs) And so COVID was raging, so I was very driven by this topic, and everyone I kept talking to talked about housing issues. And so it really became a big motivating factor because this is, in many ways, the social and political issue of our times. And uh, many things are getting cheaper. It's cheaper to afford a smartphone, it's cheaper to afford a TV, but the things that you actually need to survive housing, health care, education, child care are getting further and further out of reach. And
1: uh, that trend will take us where if nothing is uh, put in its way? What kind of society?
3: A nation of renters, a nation of th- where people are at each other's throats, where uh, we're on the move on, all the time, where we're working all the time in jobs that increasingly don't fulfill us or serve the needs of our greater community.
1: All right. What a a fascinating topic and and the work you've done on this. Very interesting. Brendan O'Brien, Homesick, is the book, Why Housing is Unaffordable and How We Can Change It. And uh, Brendan came into our Iowa Public Radio studio in uh, Iowa City uh, on a trip here visiting uh, your home turf uh, in the
3: Midwest here. Absolutely. It's good to be home.
1: Today's edition of River to River produced by Samantha McIntosh and Danny Gere. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.